For those of you who've been in part of this church for a long time, you know Greg and Beverly Thompson. Greg, I just want to acknowledge you're here this morning. Greg and Beverly uh, went out to serve with a whole network of schools in Indonesia. And does this complete three years? Four years. Okay. Is that right? Am I getting this right? Our hand signals. We've got to get our act together. Anyway, I want them to know you're here, Greg, so they can speak to you afterwards. Uh, we got to visit the other day. But... Uh, um, that, uh, an amazing ministry there. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Psalm 32 for just a few minutes before we um, come to our time of commitment at the end of the service. When it comes to understanding the Psalms and all of Scripture, context is everything. Uh, the Psalms is a collection of 150 expressions of the heart, you might say. Some reflect uh, great doubt and times of suffering and difficulty and even depression and discouragement. Others uh, express times of joy and exhilaration. Some express remorse and repentance from sin, while others are just statements of strong trust in God. Um, several authors uh, authored the Psalms. Moses did a few. Asaph, who was a court musician for the king, he uh, composed several. Uh, King David, uh, he composed many of the psalms. Psalm 73, about half of the psalms were written by David. And this psalm is called a penitential psalm. This one was written by David, and I'll tell you more about it in just a moment. Hear God's word, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. <clears throat> Psalm 32 has to be read in connection with Psalm 51, which is David's great psalm of repentance. The Psalm 32 apparently was written a good deal of time later after that happened maybe years, uh, maybe decades later, as he was thinking back to what had happened in his life and when he was in a very hardened state toward God and how God gave him joy after repentance came. In fact, when we come to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul is teaching about the doctrine of justification by faith in Romans chapter 4, he uses the first two verses from Psalm 32 as the Old Testament justification for that doctrine. 
So if the Apostle Paul thought this psalm was that important to include that in the teaching about justification by faith in Romans, then obviously it's important for us as well. The psalm begins like Psalm 1 with the words blessed or happy or joyful. It's a note of celebration. It's a note of joy. It's only the second psalm in all the collection of the psalms to begin that way. The first being Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or, and so forth. In Psalm 1, it's describing what a person does who is blessed. And none of us can do what's described in Psalm 1 perfectly. But in Psalm 32, this person is blessed because of the repentance he or she has fallen away and then been restored to God. And as a result of that, it begins by saying this person is blessed, this person is happy, this person is joyful. Now, I need to remind you just the context of what had happened, that he's calling back and remembering what, what sin had happened in his life. In the Old Testament, we find, first find David as a teenager, and he is the youngest of seven other brothers. His father's named Jesse. The king at that time, the first king of Israel, was named Saul. And Saul has uh, turned his back on God. He started out well, but he, he, midway through, he, he was a disaster. So God says to Samuel, who was... The, the prophet at the time, I want you to anoint this, this other person who's going to become the king. I basically am going to replace Saul with him. And so he comes to this household and he anoints David, who's a, who's a teenager at the time. Then you know the, the story of later on how he goes to see his brothers and he ends up fighting Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and is victorious. And as a result of that, he becomes somewhat of a national hero. And Saul is jealous when he sees the people's, uh, people honoring this young, young fellow. So over the period of about 13 years or so, Saul, off and on, in his confusion, tries to kill David. And, and David, much of that time, much of those years, is fleeing for his life. He ultimately becomes the king at the age of 30. And we learned that he had many military victories and uh, uh, he was very successful as the king. You would have been glad to be part of that nation with David as a king for about nine years. And then at age 39, we, we read in the Old Testament where he, on a, on a given afternoon, when it was a time that kings were off to war, he's, he sees a, a beautiful woman bathing uh, near his, his house, and he sends messengers to, to get her and inquires about who she is, and he's told even before she comes that, well, that is so-and-so, that is Bathsheba, the, son of so, the daughter of so-and-so, the husband of Uriah the Hittite. So he knows that she's married, yet he sends messengers. They bring her to him. They commit adultery. Within a short time, as you can realize within a, a matter of weeks she sends a message to him saying I'm expecting a child so David we see the hardness of his heart rather than repenting at that time rather than um, 
doing what was right, he sends to his, his general, Joab, and says, hey, send uh, Uriah back. Bring him out of battle and, and bring him back. And he comes to see David, and David asks him, how are things going there in the battle? And he feeds him, and he, he, uh, he humors him, and he says, why don't you go home tonight? You need a break, basically. Go home and eat and spend the night with your wife, thinking that if he can get him to do that, then they'll confuse the pregnancy, saying that it's, it's by him. But being a patriot and being courageous, he says, I can't, I can't, I can't go back and, and be in comfort with my wife and in my home while the other soldiers are there in battle. And so he stays there with, with the servants of David. Well, David sees that fail. So the next night he calls him in and we still, still see now how the sin grows. He gets him drunk, thinking if I can cause him to lose his wits, He'll go back down to his wife. Well, he doesn't. So then he comes to option three. David comes to option three, and he sends a message to Joab, the general, and says, I want you to move Uriah to the front of the battle, back away from him when the battle is thick, and see that he is killed. And that's precisely what happens. So when David gets the message, and there's a little bit more drama with that, he sends for Bathsheba, and he marries her. Now, by the time this happened, David had at least seven wives. And he had, I think, more than 14 children. He was not a deprived man. So he goes and he, for at least the time until the child is born, he is hardened toward God. He does not repent. And then Uriah, not Uriah, then Nathan the prophet comes to David at God's command and he says, I want you to go to David. And because Nathan is afraid, he's the king. He could right on the spot say, you're, you're dead if he doesn't like what Nathan says. Well, well, Nathan tells him a little story, says there was a poor man, he and his family, they don't have anything except this one little lamb. Here's this rich man, he's got all these flocks, all, everything he needs, and he decides to throw a feast. What does he do? He takes the lamb from this poor family, prepares it for the meal rather than using one of his own. And David, in hearing this story, knows what justice is he said surely this man should be punished what was this was wrong this wealthy man to take what belonged to this poor man and he surely justice must be carried out and Nathan says well you are the man and by God's Holy Spirit uh, David repents and the baby's been born so I'm trying to give you the time frame at least nine months have passed now that, that David's heart is as hard as stone and his sin will affect many. The rest of the story, kind of, if you were here last week and you heard Roland Barnes preach, if you didn't, you ought to go back and listen to it. But talking about Jacob's family line and all the dysfunction and all the sin and incest and everything else, well, essentially, from the time David commits adultery of Bathsheba, that becomes his story as well. The nation suffers the family members of all these different marriages, which he was never to do. God had said, do not multiply wives. And he had violated that. And it's just, it's chaos and it's violence and it's murder and it's sin upon sin. In looking back at his time of hardness before he repented, that's when he writes Psalm 32. And he notes, 
of what he felt during that time. And he says how God forgave. And he uses three words to describe sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's the first word. Secondly, whose sin is covered. Second word, I mean, the transgression is the first. Sin is second. And then third, blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, these three words help us, they kind of come at different angles to describe sin. The first word, transgression, literally means a going away, a departure. It's rebellion against God. It's where God says, I want you to go in this direction. You shall not do this, or you shall do this. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm going this direction. The second word is sin, and it means to miss the mark. Falling short of the mark, it's an archery term. In the ancient world, it was used to describe if, if a person was aiming an arrow at it, say like a bullseye at a target, and the target's here and the arrow goes there, the person said, I sinned, meaning I missed the mark. Some may get closer than others. One may get here, one may get here, one may get here, and the mark is here, but we all miss the mark. So that's the second word. The third word is iniquity, which means twisted or corrupted. It describes our rebellion against God. Barbara and I, my, my wife Barbara and I were talking yesterday and I, we went up to Athens to, for the second birthday of our youngest grandkids, these twin boys. Big day, big day. <laughs> it's funny how kids at that age love these little plastic lawnmowers that make bubbles come out of them. <laughs> For hours, for hours, pushing those things. And I said, you know, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about how most of us live with the consciousness of that, that one sin in our life. Here's what I mean. And, and you may have this. I don't think I do, where I tend to remember one particular sin and that when I think of myself being a sinner, that's the one thing that really stands out. Here's the example. Augustine said that for him, that one sin, here was Augustine who was entertained by the gladiatorial games, the pornography of the day with violence and so forth. Very immoral life before he becomes a Christian. And yet the, that one sin that in his confessions, the book that's still in a sense a bestseller today, that he describes that he just sticks with him was when he... He stole some fruit from a man he knew just to steal it. He said, I didn't need it. I didn't want it. I, don't, I think we even threw it away. But he said, that one sin showed me I just wanted it to be, I just wanted to hurt that man. Now, some of you may have some, something you did in the past, and that's the one that kind of shows you, that, that showed me the darkness of my own heart. That's what it's talking about here with iniquity. So transgression might be going away, sin, that word, missing the mark, and then iniquity being just a twisted character where our sin nature just comes out, and it doesn't make any sense. Like Proverbs says, you can understand if someone steals that's hungry and they steal bread out of the market because they need food, or say, well, at least the sin made sense. It wasn't right but they did it because they were hungry. But a lot of sin is for 
No reason. Nobody benefits. Why did David do this? And all the suffering that the nation and the people went through. Well, look at some of the effects of his guilt. Don't worry. We're not going through all the verses. We will finish on time, Lord willing. But he said, when I kept silent, in other words, when I did not confess, during that period of time, after Nathan confronted him, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Guilt with any of us can affect our emotions. It can make you paranoid. It can make you depressed. It can make you feel helpless. It can make you very self-justifying. And if anyone says, hey, you know, you could do this a little better, why, why, why are you... You, you get a hair trigger to where it, any, because you're feeling guilty about something else. And if someone confronts you, it can affect you that way. It can make you become elusive and withdrawn from relationships because you have a sense of guilt of maybe what you said or did toward this other person. And there can be physical things. There can be stress. You ever feel that way, just a sick feeling from unconfessed sin? You know something's wrong. It's just what Proverbs says, the way of transgressors is hard. Well, today we offer solutions, or they're offered to us. Just deny it. I didn't do it. Or keep silent. Or rationalize it. Well, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't wrong. Or blame shift. Yeah, I did it, but he made me do it. She made me do it. I wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for this person. Like Adam did with Eve. Jay Adams, who's a counselor years ago, passed away not too long ago. He used to live here for a while. In one of his little booklets, he talked about Christ and your problems. It, let's say, and imagine a, a, like a cantaloupe uh, or a ball, a round circle. And he said, when we have a sin in our life, there are different ways we can approach it. So if you can visualize his diagram, like here's his circle. And, and this, he said, you, you can come up to it. And you can turn around and go away, say, I, ju I just can't deal with that. You, and so the arrow goes back down. You can come up to it and then divert off to a smaller thing over here that's re really not the main issue, but that's the one you'll focus on. Y you can go up to it and go around it and say, yeah, it's there, but can't do anything about it. I'm just going to leave it that way. Or, and, I like, and I've never forgotten this, I saw this in, uh, in high school. <laughs> it... it the arrow goes right up and splits, it splits it in half. They say, I'm going to go right to the heart of the issue, and we're going to deal with it. Well, that's what happened with David uh, afterwards. He deals with it, and he confesses, and he uses these different terms for confession in verse 5. This is as far as we're going today. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David uses all three of the terms for sin, transgression, iniquity, and sin itself, and he says that you covered that. You covered the sin. I confessed it, which means to agree with. We, I agree, God, it's wrong. What I did was wrong. It's my fault. I did it. I chose to do it. I knew it was a violation of your law, but I did it anyway. I confess that to you. Someone has said that the most difficult part of confession is not with God, but with ourselves. That we're not willing often to admit that we're wrong. 
It matters, you know, and that's why God invites us. And Isaiah 1, he says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And it's not just a general confession. The confessions we hear, the public, <laughs> the public confessions that, that children are being taught today by leaders are ridiculous. I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I meant to say. I'm sorry if you interpreted my, that is not what's being described here. It's to acknowledge and admit before God, yes, what you say about my action, what you say about my thoughts, what you say about my motivation, that's what I did. And the promise, if we don't confess, I mean, the great thing is look at the promise with confessions. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was brought up in a ministry that taught me something that I still use today. And, I, and I'm going to, it's so elementary, you may think it sounds kind of funny. But in prayer, this is what I do, and I, I was taught this. I will take a notebook or a sheet of paper and I will just list out the sins that I'm thinking about. Lord, I've done this, 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 this. I said this, this, this. This is what I'm preoccupied with. And list those out. And then I was taught to take a pen and usually a marker. And I put First John 1, 9. I write that across that list of sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I rip this thing up. And I throw it in the trash can, and, and I say, Lord, you, you have taken care of those. Now, I was, I was taught that in like the seventh grade, and I still do it. It gives me a strong realization of what God has said. So, in the last couple of moments, his repentance is final and complete. And it, when he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, all those Negative things he felt in verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Paul Tournier wrote a book called Guilt and Grace. If you don't know that name, Paul Tournier was a Swiss physician, and he was also an author. And many people, though he died in the 1980s, he said, they say he was the most famous Christian physician of the 20th century. And he wrote books about counseling from a physician's point of view. And he said this about, in his book, Guilt and Grace. He said, what astonished me is the, the effect a real confession can have. Very often it is not only the decisive religious experience of freedom from guilt, but the sudden cure of the physical or psychological illness. Sometimes in less than an hour, there occurs in a patient I am seeing for the first time and to whom I have spoken but a few words, a release from psychological tension, which I would have been proud to obtain after months of therapy. Now, I'm not trying to be therapeutic here, and the Bible isn't therapy. We don't need a therapist. We need a savior, <laughs> most of us. I don't need somebody to explain. I mean, I've been helped by counseling, so I understand the context of what I'm saying. And there's a place for sure for people that are wiser in certain areas to say, hey, I need help with this area. But often we don't need a therapist to help us understand why we do what we do. 
okay? We need a Savior because of what we do <laughs> and why we do it. And that's what he was saying. David then, these last comments, David then begins to teach. The rest of the psalm, I will, verse 6 and follow, 8 and following, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He has moved now as he's recalling that from the guilty sinner who brought all sorts of trouble on so many lives, including death to some, and now he's teaching us. You may say, well, who is he to teach me? Listen, if you want to deal with your sin, do you want somebody that has appeared to live a perfect life? Or do you want somebody like him who did some stuff that are unimaginable and somehow or another God brought him through it and kept him from killing himself out of shame? I would say when David talks about forgiveness, school's in session. When he talks about restoration, school is in session. So that's who I want to hear. Now, I told you I was going to end on time. I'm going to honor that so I don't sin before you by lying to you. <laughs> I do have another blank sheet of paper. Uh, this is the message our church transmits to the world through us. A commitment to the giving in this church is to get that word out. So let me close in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing. And if you're prepared to turn those cards in, you can do that. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you send a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who dies in our place, who takes and covers our sin and makes us right with you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would ask for those of us that may, we may be like David, maybe not public sin, maybe not murder, adultery, or so forth, but in our own hearts, maybe there's much murder, maybe there's much adultery, maybe there's a much deceit and duplicity. We pray today that your spirit would work in our lives, that we would confess our sins before you, and that we would experience that forgiveness that comes only from that, that we would know that it's true and real. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.